This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Sometimes the mind rests very easily in states of gratitude, states of settledness, stillness, or concentration, attentiveness, where we, we're clear, the mind is clear and wise as it meets experience. Sometimes we're very settled with an ease of letting go, a renunciation and a peace. So just consider what tends to cross your mind on a daily basis. Very often, we're caught by worldly concerns. Maybe there's financial worries. Or do we meet those worries recognizing the blessings of renunciation? Is there fear of aging and death? Or do we meet the fact of aging and death knowing with the wisdom that knows impermanence. We have loves, we have relationships, and there can be attachment to roles and friends and family. But is there also a willingness to let go, a willingness to find joy and happiness in a freedom, in a release, in a lack of control? So we look at the mind sometimes and we notice, does it tend towards being uplifting, joyful, calm, steady, supportive, motivating us to the development of things that we deeply value in tranquility, in harmony, in clarity, in wisdom, in virtue? Or are there gross or subtle ways that our own thinking process sabotages our desire, our deeper desire for peace, for happiness, and for wisdom? The primary question that I'm asking is how do you use your mind? What do you frequently think and ponder upon? And what has become the inclination of your mind? This traditional training of using the recollections that we've been exploring in this lecture series increases our capacity to experience joy and tranquility as the mind inclines towards wholesome states. And so as we recollect the Buddha, as we recollect the Dhamma, as we recollect the Sangha, as we contemplate virtue and generosity and, yes, heavens, then we incline our minds towards what is wholesome and we find steadiness, calmness, tranquility, and peace in those thoughts. We find joy in those thoughts. So tonight I want to focus on the last of these six traditional recollections or reflections on heavens. On the surface, the recollection of heavens is kind of difficult, perhaps, for the average 
a Western Buddhist practitioner to kind of wrap our minds around what does this mean to recollect heavens? And most people transfer a kind of Old Testament vision of the heavens onto these teachings and confuse a Judeo-Christian idea of eternal heavenly life with what in Buddhist tradition is really simply impermanent realms of existence where there are more pleasant realms and less pleasant realms that arise due to the conditions that are created by our actions. These different levels of heavenly realms that are considered more pleasant, more sublime, more refined than the human life are populated by various beings. And some are the, of these beings can enjoy the senses similar to the way that we enjoy the senses. And in other realms, they are so refined that really the only thing that they enjoy is the refined mind of meditative bliss. Tastes and smells and even music doesn't attract those minds, but just the peace and tranquility and joy of meditative bliss. And there are other realms where it, the, the, the body doesn't exist in any kind of material form. They are formless realms. So the entities that live there are formless, are immaterial. And although their lifespans are very, very long, they are still quite impermanent. Their existence comes to an end. Nowhere in all the heavens, even though there's some of them, the beings are said to live eons and eons and eons in these incredibly, unfathomably long lives, experiencing exquisite bliss, divine bliss. They're always described as impermanent. It's not an eternal heavenly life. In the Buddhist tradition, it's believed that Beings are born into any realm, whether that's a human realm, an animal realm, a celestial, heavenly realm, or a hell realm, according to their action, according to their kama. And so that birth is, among, is part of the result of the intentional actions that they have performed in the past. And although the general notion of kama actually makes quite a bit of sense to me personally, as a teaching on causes and effects of conditionality. And I don't have too much trouble believing or thinking or kind of letting my mind rest on this idea that there is quite possible future lives, a rebirth process of some kind. I still have found it a little bit difficult to conceive of these specific heavens and hells because I can't see them with my own eyes. So what is it that they're talking about? Are they real? Are they mythical? Are they made up? I don't know. Because of that uncertainty and confusion and discomfort with this idea of these other realms of existence, these heavens, I avoided doing this recollection practice on the heavens for many, many years. I practiced all the other recollections, but would just skip this one. But at one point, I made the commitment to do the complete training that is 
presented in the Visuddhimagga. And so eventually I found myself face to face with the chapter on the recollection of the heavens <laughs> and the instruction that it was time to explore this. So I had to kind of look and see what was this particular practice about. And I discovered that the essence of this meditation was not so much about heaven at all was not so much about these realms of existence. And my resistance to it, my uh, discomfort with it, was rather unfounded. Because this is a recollection and reflection on merits, on virtue, on good qualities, on things we all know and appreciate. The practice is basically to first reflect on the superior qualities of celestial beings. That there, that there is an existence that is more refined than ours. That they experience something out of greater purity of mind, greater a divine purity, greater, like somehow, somehow they had kind of their virtues together. They kind of had it together. And then immediately after contemplating these um, superior qualities of celestial beings, then one would turn one's attention to contemplate those same superior qualities within ourselves. To whatever extent we could find them within ourselves. Some well-developed, perhaps, and some only in just subtle seeds that could be nurtured, that could come to growth. So the thought of heaven serves simply as a mirror, revealing that we all have the potential to develop the mind. We all have the potential to develop divine virtues right now in our lives. I'd like to read a paragraph from the Abhidhamata Sangaha, which is a comprehensive manual on Abhidhamma. It says, The recollection of the devas is practiced by carefully considering that the deities are born in such and such exalted states on account of their faith, their morality, their learning, their generosity, and their wisdom. I too possess those same qualities. So we look for those superior qualities, and then we think, I too possess those same qualities. And then it says, this meditation subject is a term for mindfulness with the special qualities of one's own faith, morality, learning, generosity, and wisdom as its objects, and with the devas standing as witnesses. So we turn our attention to become mindful of those qualities within ourselves. We each have the potential to do so much good in our lives. We don't need to be reborn as a deity. We don't need to wait for the blessings of a deity. In the Anguttara Nikaya, it presents this teaching on the recollection of the devas as being an expansion of an interaction that the Buddha had with one particular married couple. 
And it seems that this married couple was deeply in love, like head over heels. Yes, even though they had been married for a long time. They were head over heels in love, and they aspired to never be parted from each other, even by death. So they wanted to be reborn again and again and again together. And so they asked the Buddha how they could accomplish this. How could they continue their association lifetime after lifetime so that even death would not part them? How could they be reunited through the cycle of rebirths? And the Buddha instructed them to practice these qualities in the same way and to the same degree, so that if they practiced faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom in the same way and to the same degree, then they would have the possibility of being reborn again and again in the similar conditions. According to the law of karma, beings arise in celestial realms due to their good actions, due to the maturity of these qualities. So if these happy lovers shared the same kama, then they could share a rebirth into the same conditions, the same realm. Whenever we talk about celestial anything in the Buddhist tradition, it's really important to understand that in the Buddhist time, they did not believe in a monotheistic god. Deities, celestial beings, and gods were understood to be beings, you know, like they just were beings who had very long lifespans, but they were subject to death. Their existence was impermanent, just like ours. And there are lots of stories in the discourses of the Buddha that involve some characters from the heavenly realms who come down and chit-chat, or else with the monks and the nuns, or else the monks and nuns go visit the the celestial realms and chit-chat with them. Okay, they weren't chit-chatting, they were sharing the Dhamma. (laughs) I stand corrected. But basically, these devas, these celestial beings, had lives. You know, they had palaces and mansions, they had musicians, they had activities, they had families. They even had conflicts, they had wars. You know, they had lives, they had societies. And they had kind of all the things, social duties, social responsibilities. Sometimes they complained about being too busy. So they had all the things that we could relate to, but with a bit of extra pleasure, perhaps. But even within these realms, and even within a single realm of the heavens, there were still differences, differences between individuals and social differences. And sometimes those differences would manifest as different degrees of wisdom, different degrees of beauty and luminosity, different degrees of power or virtue, or a different length of lifespan. Some were really long and some were really, really, really long. This is important to understand because in the West, sometimes we misunderstand these recollection practices and think of them as being some kind of gesture of veneration or ritual or worship, 
something that just like uh, bows down to the, the heavenly realms. And that isn't what happens in Buddhist teachings. In fact, sometimes people assume that this statue to my right here represents a god, and that if somebody and that if somebody bows down to it, they are submitting themselves or bowing down to a god or a deity. But the Buddha was not a god; the Buddha was a human being. He was a regular old person. I mean, he was a regular old person. A regular person. He had two legs. He had two arms. He had two hands. He had a head, one nose, you know, he lived a life, a long life for a human being at the time, about maybe 80 years, which at that time was a long life, a harsh life, a hard life. But he was just a human being, not really very different from us. And the enlightenment that he attained did not turn him into a deity. It freed him from the causes of suffering, and from the round of suffering. And that liberation, that awakening, that freedom is something that we can do too as human beings on this earth. We can attain that. We can have the same understanding, the same wisdom, and the potential for the same letting go, the same release as the Buddha. And so we can look to the Buddha, not as a deity, but we can look to him as a great man. And in that, see the qualities of the Buddha, the qualities of one who has awakened. And when we think of the qualities of one who has awakened, we have the potential to again use it as a mirror, turn it back to us and say, he did this, we can too. He's an example. The Buddha is an example of someone who has cultivated the mind and has developed virtue, has developed the mind, and has developed wisdom to a very refined, I wanted to say perfect, but where is the perfection in this? To a great extent. Thinking of the Buddha and recollecting the Buddha, when that is successful, has the result of inspiring us to make the efforts to realize freedom ourselves. Not to submit to the Buddha or to become a Buddhist, but to practice the way of Buddhas. Many people have said the Buddha solved his problem, now we, solve, now we, we must each solve ours. And I think this is quite true. In a similar way to the reflection on the Buddha, when we reflect on the gods, when we reflect on heavens, when we reflect on devas and heavenly beings, we consider their good acts, their wholesome qualities, the, the good deeds, the good actions, the good karma that resulted in this heavenly birth. And we reflect. We too can develop those qualities. We too can do those good deeds. And specifically, those qualities that we reflect upon include faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. These are not outside our ability to develop. Faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. It's part of our path. 
In the Anguttaranakaya Book of the Sixes, the Discourse to Mahanama, it says, Furthermore, Mahanama, a noble disciple develops the recollection of the devas thus, there are devas in the heaven of the four great kings, Tavatisma devas, Yama devas, Tushita devas, devas who delight in creation, devas who control what is created by others, devas of Brahma's company, and devas still higher than these. So lots of realms of devas and celestial beings. There is found in me such faith as those devas possessed because of which when they passed away from this world, they were reborn there. There is found in me such virtue, such learning, such generosity, such wisdom as those devas possessed, because of which, when they passed away from this world, they were reborn there. When a noble disciple recollects his own faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom, as well as those of the devas, on that account his mind is not obsessed by lust, hatred, or delusion. His mind is straight with the devas as its object. A noble disciple whose mind is straight gains the inspiration of the meaning, the inspiration of the Dhamma, gains gladness connected with the Dhamma. When his mind is gladdened, rapture arises. For one uplifted by rapture, the body becomes calm. One calm in body feels happy. For one who is happy, the mind becomes concentrated. This is called a noble disciple who dwells evenly amidst an uneven generation, who dwells unafflicted amidst unafflicted generation, who has entered upon the stream of the Dhamma and develops recollection of the devas. So the core of this reflection is to intentionally focus our attention on meritorious qualities, the qualities that have the potential to improve our existence, that existence within this lifetime, and potentially to improve our experience of future lifetimes. So I'd like to look briefly at what each of these qualities are. First, we recollect our own faith. Faith, the Pali term is sadha. It's sometimes translated as conviction, as confidence, even as trust. We can consider what do we have faith in? What is worthy of faith? Traditionally, The Buddhist teachings suggest having faith, having confidence in the Buddha, which implies the potential for awakening, in the Dhamma, which describes the path of awakening, and in the Sangha, which is trust in the community of those practicing or having realized awakening. Take a moment to just consider the quality of your own faith. What do you trust? What do you have conviction and confidence in? What does the heart rest upon? Consider not only external things that might stimulate your faith, 
but perhaps also internal qualities that inspire confidence, that inspire a sense of trust. Allow faith, allow trust or confidence to feel like a quality that is accessible to you, that you can find within yourself to some degree or other. We can also recollect our virtues. And traditionally the recollection of virtues develops with the thought of virtues that are unbroken, unmodeled, sort of virtues that are quite well developed so that they are a source of strength, a source of self-respect that make us trustworthy. And here we can consider times where we have restrained unwholesome impulses or where we have acted for the good of others. We can consider the results of our virtuous acts and consider the support that virtue provides for us, how it supports the heart, how it supports our self-respect. Virtue can bring us an immediate experience of joy and it also brings us happiness in the future. So we can let the mind dwell for some time on thoughts and even a felt sense of being virtuous. We can trust that virtue will lead to long-enduring joy more enduring than the momentary comforts that people try to gain by lying sometimes or taking things that don't belong to them or the false pleasures that are sometimes associated with sexual misconduct, crude speech, or intoxication. Virtue is a more enduring joy. Sense the power and the potency of trusting your own virtue and let it be a source of happiness for you, both here and now, and in lives to come. We can also recollect our own learning. Learning. Hmm. I think this is an interesting one to consider. Now, at the time of the Buddha, there weren't like Buddhist studies programs that somebody could get a PhD in. They weren't writing dissertations on Buddhism. They weren't even publishing books on Buddhism. But what is this learning? We all learn. Do you value the time that you spend trying to understand the causes of suffering and working to learn, to release, to let go of those causes of suffering? Do you value the teachings of the Buddha? You probably do because you come here 
this is all we talk about. I mean, we sit quietly, and then we talk about the teachings of the Buddha. And some Tuesdays it might be more interesting than other Tuesdays. But over the course of time, especially those of you that have been coming for years, just about every Tuesday, have you learned anything? It's pretty amazing sometimes how learning happens little by little, and we hardly know. Because it's not about studying a subject. Learning can be quite profound. And it can be a very wholesome process. Because when we recognize our capacity to learn, we are recognizing our capacity to grow. We are empowering ourselves with the experience to improve our lives and to recognize that we can apply these teachings. We can change unwanted patterns into more wholesome patterns. We can learn and grow. What have you learned about yourself through meditation? Just reflect if you've learned something about yourself through your meditation practice. Even if you're not so fond of these big words like enlightenment and awakening and liberation and freedom, have you nevertheless learned something about a liberating path? What might that be? There's tremendous merit, there's tremendous uh, power in developing the mind through listening, through contemplating, through reading, through discussing, and through practicing. It can bring great clarity and wisdom to the mind. On this path of practice, we learn so much, and much of it is subtle. Much of it is difficult to describe. The learning is not merely being able to rattle off a whole bunch of Buddhist lists. We're learning about suffering, the causes of suffering, the end of suffering, and the way to the end of suffering. One of the high points of our program for me each month is the meeting of the Sutta study groups. We have three sutta study groups, one in the evenings, one in the mornings, and one on online each month. And I always learn something. As many times as I read those texts on my own, I learn something new. There's some new angle. There's something touches me differently when it's discussed in a group of thoughtful, caring, committed people. And I just look forward always to each month of those sutta study reflections. The next recollection is that of generosity. 
to recognize this quality of a virtuous quality of generosity that is associated with each act of giving. Generosity has a quality that we can feel. It can be felt. Maybe it's a heartfelt feeling. When we give, the heart is spacious. It's light. We're not grasping. The heart and mind are content, joyous, connected. Generosity can bring immediate happiness here and now, and it's also said to be one of the most powerful causes to lead to heavenly bliss. I think when we give, it's really important to reflect upon the giving and to let that vivid act of having given reverberate within our hearts so that that generous act actually serves to nurture more generosity because we experience joy through the giving and naturally we want to do things that bring joy. A couple of years ago, this community organized an alms food offering over at the temple, the Thai temple in Fremont. I think some of you were there. And I remember afterwards how happy people looked smiling, happy, and expressing verbally how much happiness it gave, it provided, just to simply give food. Just to give food. In this group, we practice generosity all the time. We could charge an entrance fee or a membership fee. But we don't. I mean, it wouldn't be that difficult. Yoga classes are great, and there's a certain fee that people pay. You know, you pay to go to a continuing education course. You have a membership fee sometimes with various organizations. We're all accustomed to those methods of fees and memberships. But instead, we put out two baskets, and we invite your support. We invite your offerings. One of the primary reasons we use this system of generosity, of dana, is to provide a regular opportunity to practice generosity so that it becomes a conscious and integral part of our practice. We don't do it because the baskets are particularly efficient, although I think they are kind of pretty. I like the designs. And the organization needs are no different than any other organization's needs that has memberships. My cost of living is no different than the cost of living of anybody else who would get wages or a salary or would charge for their time or for their service calls or for their consultation fees or for their whatever. But nevertheless, we're quite committed to promoting generosity and to integrating the act of dana into our spiritual lives. So I hope when you give that you take a moment to enjoy that act of giving and let that act of generosity 
be a source of happiness that links to the development of your own heart and mind. We can then recollect, we can appreciate, we can remember the times when we shared, when we gave, when we helped. And let that be a support for further happiness. And the final quality that's listed in these superior qualities is to recollect our own wisdom. Now this doesn't mean to think about how smart you are. But do you sense your wisdom? Do you trust your perspective and view of things? Do you trust that intuitive knowledge that is able to discern, that's able to have some clarity, an inner knowledge, a clear understanding of what leads to happiness and what leads to harm, an unmistakable recognition of what is suffering, the cause of suffering, what leads to the end of suffering, Knowing things as they are brings deep ease. It's an experience of peace and of non-conflict. When we know our own wisdom, we'll stop struggling with how things appear in our life. We'll trust ourselves to be with how things are and trust that we'll be able to respond with wisdom to however Things are. So these are the five beautiful qualities faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. They are considered superior qualities, they raise us up and make the mind divine. They don't require seclusion, long meditation sessions in remote caves. We don't even need to go on retreat to develop these qualities. They develop through how we meet our life. They develop through how we live. Although these are categorized as qualities of a superior person, which implies a person who is on the path of awakening and maybe far along that path of awakening. These are accomplishments that we can attain as lay people on this path. Faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. So I'd like to take just a couple of minutes for reflection in silence, maybe just two minutes, and then I'll open it for some questions and discussion.
So do you have any questions or comments or discussion? Okay, so Christy's mentioning that she read, read a book by Bhikkhu Bodhi. What was the title of it? Uh, oh, Eightfold Path, The Eightfold Path. And really recommended the chapter on faith at the beginning. I do think it's really important to reflect on some of these qualities. And so often we come to the meditation group just thinking that we want to, you know, learn to quiet the mind, learn to overcome restless thoughts, stop the planning and the worrying and the anxiety and the, um, all those kinds of things, which is fair enough. But... Uh, there's a richness that comes and a supporting conditions that come when we reflect on faith, too, how important that is. And some of these other lists that start to fill in the whole path, I think, make it much more comprehensive and lived. So when we realize faith, you know, we, we, we contemplate, what do we trust? You know, what really do we trust? What, what does give you faith? Because it's an evolving process. It's not like one thing. I have faith in this. This is how it is. Because faith is not the same as belief. Faith is trust in something. And that trust comes by seeing how we grow, how we change, how it gets verified through our own experience of life. And so it's an evolving process that involves observing, trying something and observing the result, trying it again and observing the result, seeing what happens, and then slowly developing faith. So as we develop this path, we're never asked to just believe in this path. But we are asked to try it out and then observe what the experience is, see where it leads. And then if that's leading towards good things, you know, towards an increase of the things that, we, that are wholesome and a decrease of the things that are unwholesome, then it's worth trusting that path. It's worth having some confidence and conviction that this is going in the direction we want to go. So without faith, we'll just keep stopping. We'll keep questioning. We'll, I mean, questioning and inquiry is good, but we'll just keep sabotaging ourselves. Faith allows us to trust enough to take those steps forward because we don't know when we take the step, we don't know. You know, there's, there's always this leap of faith because we have to take a step into something that, that is unknown before we can experience it to then reflect and say, oh, yeah, it's good. If it's not, we can trust ourselves to get out of it again. <laughs> yeah, faith is really important. And we don't talk about it very much in Buddhism. We really don't. Even in the Buddhist tradition, it's not talked about very much. But in Western Buddhism, most of the time we rarely talk about it. We mostly talk about mindfulness or concentration or wisdom. But actually, wisdom without faith, wisdom has to be balanced with faith. Wisdom without faith it can, is said to get excessive so that it's always critical fault-finding and like gets, can get really harsh. But faith without wisdom is going to be gullible and stupid. So wisdom and faith have to be balanced. Yes, that's a good point. So, so Sharon's asking, what is the 
are, are beings in the heavenly realms not yet fully awake. And yes, that's correct. One who has fully awakened would not be reborn again into that cycle because though uh, the heavenly realm might have a lot of pleasure in it, nevertheless, it's still, it's still considered a realm of suffering, of dukkha, because of the impermanence of it and because it leads to death. And so the awakening is, it's like instead of just improving your position on that wheel of suffering, you know, trying to get a better seat, it's like awakening is a renunciation of the whole thing. It steps off of it. So virtuous actions take one into higher and higher and higher. This is the basic description of various kinds of virtuous actions and good deeds and uh, development of wisdom and good qualities improve one's lot in this life and in the next life. But it's that liberating insight, not virtuous action, it's liberating insight that frees one from the causes of suffering. So one can experience awakening complete awakening from the human realm and not ever even have to be reborn as one of those devas and enjoy eons of celestial bliss. <laughs> but one can also do good deeds, get a heavenly rib, and then have a nice long time to practice really hard <laughs> and awaken out from a, a heavenly life. There's also stories of beings going in a heavenly life and then coming down, coming back to human life and awakening. There's lots of different combinations in the stories. There's a rich kind of lore in the Buddhist tradition of lots of different, you know, stories of different people and different beings and different characters. Well, we have one more week in this series, so I will be seeing you next week, and it will be a deepening practice session, which is actually one of my favorite things to do together as a community. So we'll have some reflection time, and we'll do more practice together, sitting, perhaps walking. We'll see how it goes. But um, I do love those, the model. One of the things about a sitting group that, to me, is really important is that that it not only be a lecture group, but that it really be a group where a community comes together to practice together. And so periodically having these sessions where the teachings are shorter and the, and the primary experience is developing and deepening the practice through sitting, walking, and reflection is, to me, a really important part of the, of the whole series. So I'll see you then. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.